Hey y'all, welcome back to Gramps Plays, where my guests and I discuss all things of public interest and anything else that might need a little changing in the good old USA. From ending the drug war and freeing those wrongfully imprisoned for crimes that have no victim, to making government more like what our forefathers intended of we the people again. I talk with doctors, scientists, politicians, and more, so you can make your own decisions on important issues in the USA. I am super excited for who I have as my guest this week. She is one of the top researchers, in my opinion, on the methods of administration and dosing of cannabis as medicine. One of the most important aspects of research today where cannabis is concerned. She has been featured in multiple documentaries such as Netflix, Weed the People, and Mary Jane's The Women of Weed, to name just a few. She has done TEDx talks that are fantastic, as well as a multitude of informational videos and interviews. Tonight, I welcome one of the founders of Aunt Zelda's, Mara Gordon. Let's meet Mara and hear what she has to say about the whole research aspects of cannabis, cannabis as medicine, and where she thinks we need to be headed in that respect. Welcome, Mara, and thank you for joining me here on Gramps Place. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Tell us a little about yourself, your background, and what brought you into the whole world of medical cannabis. I know a lot about you because I've followed your work for several years, but I, I'm not so sure maybe my audience is that familiar. Well, um, I um, was initially searching for some solutions for my husband who um, had uh, broken his back and required surgery. And as a sober uh, person, he was unwilling to have the surgery if it required that he go on opioids. The uh, uh, doctors made it clear that he would be on them the rest of his life. And he knew what that meant. And I wasn't thrilled with the idea for obvious reasons, you know? And um, so we started searching out other uh, options and we came across cannabis. Um, I didn't really consider it initially for myself, even though I was a severe chronic pain uh, patient myself, because I, you know, as far as I was concerned, cannabis was, you know, just another drug and a gateway to heroin and all the, I had bought in lock, stock and barrel to every lie that had ever been fed by the, by uh, the media. Um, when I finally had the opportunity to try it, when a, a, a guest that was at my house, uh, gave me a puff on her little pipe and my pain went from eight to two, it was a game changer. And that's when I knew that there was something more here and it was time for me to investigate for myself. Mm -hmm. Sure. So through your own personal experience, you, you found that cannabis did in fact offer some kind of medicinal property and pain relief. But the lack of real any dosages, recommendations for how to use it, et cetera, is what drove you to start your research into the different ways of dosage and administration? Yeah, I had absolutely no interest in starting a business. And and, <laughs> and the irony of that is I've had, um, I've had a lot of opportunities to be of service and to be of influence, I would have to say, in the conversation. And had there been one product that was properly labeled, that never would have happened. 
because I was, I was just, I was not interested in it. I was retired on medical disability and I did not need to go back to work. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, the fact that there's nothing out there um, infuriated me. It infuriated me on so many different levels, uh, primarily because the fact that I had lived between California and Colorado for years, both legal medical cannabis states and no physician at any time, even though they had me on fentanyl patch and they had me on methadone and Neurontin and a myriad of other pharmaceuticals, not a single one of them ever mentioned cannabis as, an, uh, as a potential option for me. Mm-hmm. Certainly is a less uh, negative option, but not even an option at all. So I figured I, someone's got to figure this out and I might as well be the one to do it. Yeah. So so how much chemistry became involved in this research? I mean, with more than 150 cannabinoids now identified, uh, you had to at least make yourself somewhat aware of the compounds you were working with, right? Uh, not only the cannabinoids, but the terpenes and flavonoids as well, but primarily mm-hmm. the terpenes. Um, yes, I had to start educating myself in some in chemistry, and uh, I already had a pretty solid background in understanding of integrative medicine and utilizing um, non-traditional treatments. Um, so that was not a foreign way of thinking to me. Um, once I understood the, uh, the first thing I did though, was I decided that I didn't need to understand the plant. I needed to understand the body. Mm-hmm. So I actually started studying the endocannabinoid system and, uh, where the cannabinoid receptors were and what they did when they were activated within the body. And then I started looking at the various cannabinoids and how they interacted as far as at the time when I first started, we only knew THC, CBD, and CBN. Mm -hmm. Uh, We learned about THCV, the Varens and stuff a little while later, a few couple of years later. But at the beginning, we really only, you know, everything was just, you know, how much THC, how much CBD, and then how old is the weed, which is why they cared so much about the CBN. You knew how old it was. That was the only reason for measuring it. Um, So it was very simple. One activates the receptors. One works on other immune responses within the body. Mm -hmm. And so really quite simple. Um, And so really the the heavy lifting came around studying uh, the various effects of terpenes. Okay. Uh, because they're what I have found to be the big modulator of the effect. Uh, THC is going to activate the receptor. Mm-hmm. Whatever level you are at will determine to what extent you have psychoactivity, you have some of the other, you know, it's biphasic, uh, maybe triphasic in some, you know, as far as we know. Um, but how it impacts you and how you are affected has more to do with the other cannabinoids that were within the plant that we may or may not even know about yet, or certainly not back in those days, we didn't know anything in those days, mm-hmm. but how the terpenes work. Like, I recognize that if I use something with linalool and myrcene in there, it was going to be sleepier. If I use something with pinene, like alpha pinene and, and limonene, it might be more activating. 
So it was more about learning around that part of the chemistry than it was, um, you know, just that if you, if you study the cannabinoids, but you don't study their impact on the body, I, I think you first need to understand the body. Sure. Before you understand why the chemistry matters. Yeah. Sure. Um, you know, it, it's amazing to me how far we've come with all the research since the discovery of the endocannabinoid system. Uh, but the research that we have, you know, majority of it's not from here in the United States. It's from around the world elsewhere. Uh, you know, we're just barely cracking the book open here in the United States in comparison to some places like Israel and, and others. Let me comment on that. Sure. So everybody always talks about Israel like it's this shining light. There's more research going on in Spain, in Italy, in Absolutely. Uh, other countries as well. A lot of what I see in Israel is all designed around commercialization of devices or novel uh, uh, products. Mm -hmm. I don't see quite as much um, academic uh, studies just for the purpose of, of study. Um, sure. Everybody, you know, if it weren't for <clears throat> the fact that Raphael Meshulam has made his career in, in, tele, in Jerusalem, I doubt that anyone would even think about Israel as yeah. far as that. It's wonderful. There's some great people doing some great work, but it's not the mecca of cannabis that a lot of people in the West, in the United States in particular, seem to be under the impression that it is. Uh, I, the United States actually did a lot of research. The problem is the research had to be, um, the, the research studies had to be formulated in such a way that they were looking to prove out a negative. Sure. That it didn't work, but it still mm -hmm. went on was being done in a way that was kind of, you know, negative. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I have to clarify a little bit. I, I, I mentioned Israel as one of the foreign bodies just because of that reason that it is so well recognized here in the USA as one of the meccas. But, I, you know, I've done some, some deep research into uh, one particular condition that I suffer from. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. It's called MGUS. Uh, it's called, it's the called the multiple, see if I get it right the first time, multiple gammopathy of undetermined significance. Basically what it is, is the, the bone marrow starts to make, the part of your bone marrow that makes white blood cells starts to make these rogue protein cells. They're called M proteins. It is basically the way it was explained to me when I was first diagnosed about 10 years ago is the precursor to multiple myeloma. There's less than a 1% chance each year that, that gains by 1% that it'll turn to multiple myeloma, but it's there. And, uh, of course, it causes some, some terrible, terrible neuropathy in my legs and feet uh, because it causes nerve damage. These proteins cause nerve damage. So anyway, I, I did some research, cannabinoids and cannabis and multiple myeloma, just to see if anything would pop up, probably... A year or so after my son had passed, and you know, my research started with with epilepsy first, and then, of course, grew into more. But uh, there's three or four studies now that were done out of Italy that show very promising results for multiple myeloma right. using THC and CBD in conjunction with with conventional therapies. So, 
Yes, I would agree. There's there's fabulous research in many, many more places than just Israel. Oh, yeah. I mean, my studies have been done in Spain and Australia, Pennsylvania, you know, so uh, now we're starting one in Brazil. So, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's. I wish it was easier to do here, though. That That's one of the things oh, that just drives me nuts, you know, in, in my advocacy, which is the biggest thing I work for, uh, because I do not want any other parent to have to wake up to what I wake up to every single day. Uh, you know, people ask me all the time, do you ever get tired? Do you ever think you're going to stop? And, you know, I, at the end of every day, I think, I just am going to give up, you know. And then I wake up the next morning and he's the first thought in my head and it starts over, you know, so, but, you know, we always hear the same old lines when we talk to lawmakers, like, you know, we only have anecdotal evidence. Uh, and I, I hate that term because I believe the perceptions of what the true meaning of anecdotal evidence is are off base. What the perceptions are versus the true meaning. I think the misconception is people think of anecdotal as meaning 100% lacking scientific proof or scientific evidence of any nature. And I don't agree with that. Anecdotal evidence is scientific evidence that's from a lab, not yet proved in real time. That's what, and when you're talking about medical research, that's what I think anecdotal evidence is. Would you agree with that, that, that anecdotal simply means yet unproven in a clinical situation where we're talking about medical evidence? I actually disagree with you. Okay. I disagree because, uh, as Donald Abrams often says, you know, anecdotal evidence, you can have 500 people that have anecdotal evidence, and that's an N of one 500 times. Mm -hmm. The problem is you do not, when you don't have standardization of what is being tried, you have no way of knowing what worked, what didn't work, what caused adverse side effects, what didn't. It's just not true. Mm -hmm. Now, it doesn't mean that it lacks value. It just means that it is not scientific data. If you want to take anecdotal data or anecdotal experiences and turn it into meaningful data, you have to give a, a, a group, a universe, the same product mm -hmm. and have them take it the same way and then collect the data around what they're using. That would be a higher level of empirical data. Mm -hmm. That still wouldn't be that still wouldn't be scientific to the standpoint of of like double blind you know placebo, but that sure. would be an observational study. Mm -hmm. The problem is up to I mean now of course it's gets changing somewhat, but the vast majority of medicine that's being used out there does not have lab tests. People have no idea what the dose is that they're taking. They don't even know the chemical content of what they're taking. So it, it, it is not valid. It, it's, 
the fact that they don't die if they take too much, the fact that it helps with their symptoms, makes it more interesting. Sure. And that starting point on what to study. But I, you know, I, I wish that I could agree with you, but I just don't. Anecdotal is anecdotal. It's it's not the same thing as science that hasn't been hasn't been uh, calibrated. It has to be rigorous, especially if we want the medical community and the government agencies to accept it. It sure. has to have rigorous scientific um, study done around it. You know, I've had people that'll say, I remember back in early 2011, I was uh, talking with one of our growers at the time, and I said, I'll never forget this. This was a good grower, really good grower. And I said, there's lab testing available now. And everything I everything I get, everything I make has to be lab tested. I mean, I knew before I could kind of tell a little bit from the look and the feel and the smell and the taste. I could kind of tell, but it still was, I want rigor. And he said, I don't believe in lab testing. I just know the way things make me feel. And I trust that any day of the week over a lab, re a lab report. And... Um, that was the last time he grew for me, you know, and it was a shame, but, you know, I said, I'm going to be testing for heavy metals and, you know, I'm going to be testing for pesticides and, you know, aflatoxins, mycotoxins, all these. It's not just about the cannabinoid terpene content. Sure. It's a lot more than that. It's residual solvents. It's all those things. And um, anytime you have a lab tested product that's been well made and the, and the label actually matches what's in it, which I must add, because an awful lot of time they have a beautiful package with great labeling and there's crap stuck inside. But if yeah. there's really, if, if, if the inside matches the outside, let's say, and you get enough of people that are taking it, you can collect data that can be uh, interesting enough to, to justify spending the money for clinical trials. That's mm -hmm. what we did, for example, with uh, uh, Zalira's product, Xenoval. And Zelda's had enough, you know, empirical data from collecting on a cohort of patients that had been using it over time to justify spending the kind of money that we then did on clinical trials to then have a validated uh, medicine come out. But it was just a bunch of people saying, Oh yeah, I use THC to go to sleep at night. That's not gonna. That's not gonna raise the level of discourse at all. Well, well no. And, and to clarify, I was referring to like the scientific research that I was mentioning out of Italy about multiple myeloma. You know, they've had recurring the same effects in a petri dish. That type of research is the type of anecdotal research that I'm referring to. I realize the people talking about. Because that's what, what they tell us. Well, that's only anecdotal evidence. That's not scientific evidence. And my thing is, it was done in a lab. Are you talking about the preclinical studies? Yes, in, in, in actual laboratory preclinical. Pre yeah, that's not, that's not classified as anecdotal. That's classified as preclinical. So, yeah. And see, that's that's the clarification that I keep trying to make. Lawmakers say, oh, that's not proven in a 
a double-blind placebo-controlled trial, it's not. It's unproven. It's only anecdotal. That's what the lawmakers tell us. Well, then they need to get a, a vocabulary lesson or pull out their thesaurus, and that wouldn't be considered anecdotal. That would be considered in a sufficient for clinical. So, for example, um, if somebody does a, a preclinical trial of, like we did on breast cancer, okay, I'll mm -hmm. use our study for example. Sure. We did. We did first. We did this entire study in vitro, which means it was done in petri dishes. After we got the results from all that, we then moved to the next stage of preclinical, which is in vivo, where you yeah. do it in mice. After that, you get the data and there's enough there to potentially justify then moving into clinical, which would be double bind placebo, um, which is humans. But the reality is, and this is something that's, that people in the cannabis space, in my experience for this all these years, refuse to accept, and that is that preclinical does not necessarily guarantee clinical. Yes. Over 80% of all preclinical studies fail when they move into clinical. Mm -hmm. Okay. So mm -hmm. just because you read a study that something worked in a Petri dish or worked in a mouse does not automatically mean it's going to work in a human. And this is the frustrating thing because people are using these products and they're using these things and they're getting results and it's wonderful, but that does not science make. Absolutely. I do not disagree with that analogy one bit. Um, you know, I argue all the time with people um, that want to throw it out there that cannabis cures cancer. And, you know, uh, cure is a powerful word. Just because it's killing cancer cells does not mean it is a cure, correct? Cannabis uh, has been shown to be very promising in killing cancer cells. Sure. Many types of cancers. Now, keep in mind, there are over 200 different types of cancers, mm -hmm. and that's not even taking into account all the genetic anomalies and variances within each of these types of cancers. Okay? Mm -hmm. So... For anyone to claim that something can, quote unquote, cure this number of things, that's just that's just nuts. Um, cannabis cannot, well, nothing. And I would I would argue that there is no such thing as a cure for cancer, and there no. won't be a cure for cancer because cannabis is a. I mean, cancer is a systemic disease. So. It's a matter of managing it. It's a matter of keeping your body free of cancer cells and doing what you have to do to maintain health in order to not once again create an environment where the cancer can can um, flourish. Um, I had a discussion with uh, a doctor last Friday and we were talking about genetics and we were talking about genetic anomalies and cancers and all. And she said the same thing that so many doctors that I've spoken to have said, and that is that um, that the vast majority of cancers are environmental and lifestyle. So if you don't change those things and you go back to living the same life that you were living before, then you're sure not going to do a very good job of rolling the dice 
to whether the cancer comes back or not. Now, yeah. cannabis is very hopeful for killing cancer cells and in many and also protecting the healthy cells, which is phenomenal that it does that while you're going through standard treatments. It also seems to uh, ameliorate the uh, many of the side effects of chemotherapy and radiation, especially chemotherapy, yeah. so that a person is able to make it through a standard treatment in a timely manner instead of not being able to make it through chemo because it's making them too sick. Yeah, uh, that's like some some studies that I've I've read. Uh, I guess they would be in vitro uh, because they're in lab, but they they're saying that it's killing the cells. It's just amazing when you see some of these studies where, where they're trying to even reduce the chemo amount, and it's, it's still having a better effect than the, the original of just the chemo alone. It is very promising. Some of the things that I've read. And I mean, a lot of it is medical jargon that I didn't get involved in. Uh, I don't understand a lot of the big words, but I can get a, get the benefits when you read the the summations and the 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 uh, the uh, summaries at the end. Speaking of that, with uh, the, the what you know of, and and I know you've worked with some patients uh, with with cancer and whatnot. Um, would you? say that there are some things that we are ready and do have enough evidence to go into preclinical or clinical trials with? Yeah, absolutely. There have been preclinical studies, a myriad of preclinical studies that have been done around the world that are interesting enough, especially if you take them in their entirety and you look at what some of the conclusions that you can draw. Unfortunately, you start getting into the money issue and you have companies like GW that holds a patent on uh, against cancer, certain types. It's like, and then you, to try to get a pharmaceutical company or anybody to justify spending the millions and millions of dollars and years that it takes to actually do a clinical trial, when at the end of it, they may or may not be able to create a drug or they end up having... GW is saying, thank you very much. We'll take a carve out of that now. So, yeah, um, yeah. but there are, there are ways of approaching it by going after side effects or symptoms or, you know, a particular drug target and a particular gene target and things like that. Um, I speak uh, at this international cannabinoid-based pharmaceutical conference. Um, it's in Boston each year. And, um, all the big pharma pharmaceutical companies are represented there. And um, a couple of years ago, uh, of course, who knows, COVID, COVID time, it could have been a decade ago, it could have been six months ago, you know, it's like I'm in a time warp and the whole world sure. is, but yeah. um, I was the only person at the conference. In fact, uh, I was, well, I was the only person at the conference that talked about doing uh, clinical research utilizing a uh, whole plant medicine everybody else there and normally i'm you know i anti hyperboles but i would say everyone else there because i was the only one ethan russo was there and he when he got up and talked he says i can't believe that mara was the only one that talked about whole plant here what you have <laughs> is the pharmaceutical because they're geared towards a patent everything is around a patent they are a patentable solution sure 
they're each looking for their unique mechanism of action to figure out a cannabinoid pathway to treat a disease. And the thing that makes me nuts about that is we do not know the mechanism of action of most drugs that are out there and how they work and why they work. We just know they do. And it seems um, it's, it's because they all want to find something that they can patent. Yeah, it's just, it's all about the almighty dollar is what it all boils down to. It's a capitalist society, capitalist economic <clears throat> system with some socialism thrown in there. And, uh, you know, it's all about money. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I saw a headline earlier today that was that somebody took a screenshot of one of the big drug companies and it said something along the lines of, uh, um, is finding a cure good for our bottom line? You know, and it's like, and it was about a particular uh, disease. I mean, I'm I'm ad libbing what it said, but that was the that was the message. Like, it doesn't make economic sense for us to cure this because we're going to cure ourselves out, put ourselves out of business. Yeah, which yeah. is nuts. Yeah, absolutely. Pardon this short break for a word from our sponsors. Hey y'all, are you enjoying the guests and subjects Gramps is bringing you each week? Do you want Gramps to be able to keep bringing these great guests? Remember, Gramps does this all on his own. No producers, and no production team, just Gramps. Consider making a monthly donation to help Gramps keep it up. It can be as little as 99 cents per month. You would be surprised at how much that can help. If interested, just click the link in the show description that says support this podcast. As always, Gramps thanks you for your support. Welcome back to Gramps Place. The podcast where Gramps and his guests talk about all things of public interest. It drives me nuts, the roadblocks that we run into here in the USA. Um, I don't know if you saw the the, the headlines recently. Uh, I'm sure you know who Dr. Sue Sisley is, right? I know Sue very well, yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, her study that she's finally gotten access to good medicine and everything. Right. Heard what the bank did to her, didn't you? Bank of yeah. America closed yeah. her accounts. Well, having been personally being, I've been kicked out of five banks. Have you? Uh, oh yeah, and, and now I sit on the board. In fact, I think this is my three-year anniversary of. Um, I'm vice chair of the board of North Bay Credit Union. Okay. And and we give, which is, and we are one of the few that give uh, accounts to companies that touch the plant. Yeah. Um, and and. Uh, Anyone that's a member of the California Cannabis Industry Association automatically is eligible to get an account there. So, um, because it's just ridiculous. It is it is insane that you have groups that are obeying the law, that are following the guidelines, doing everything rigorously, and being shut down be out of ignorance. Mm-hmm. It's maddening. It's absolutely maddening to me. At any rate, uh, what can people like myself, uh, here in Texas and, and 
anywhere else in, in the United States here where we're still fighting this battle. Uh, what can we do to maybe push the needle in our favor with lawmakers a little bit? You got any opinions there? I do, actually. Um, I recently was asked to join the Council for Cannabis Regulation, which is a Washington, D.C., you know, Capitol Hill uh, lobbying group that's working directly with lawmakers on federal regulation. Cool. And so, I mean, it's, I mean, trying to work both ends or all ends of this. But the thing that I, that I stress to people is come out of the closet. Yes. If you are using cannabis and, and if you don't have to worry about like having, you know, child protective services come and take your kids away, God forbid. Sure. But I mean, short of that, don't worry about whether your doctor judges you. How is your doctor, number one, going to know what treatment that he or she is giving you that's actually working if you don't disclose all the medicines that you're taking? Mm -hmm. But more importantly, how are you going to normalize it and help the next patient? And so that's the first thing, as I say, is stop hiding your cannabis use um, because that's not helping anybody. Um, yeah. and, and, and it's not something to be ashamed of or have to hide anyway. Now, I'm not saying that everyone needs to go screaming from the, you know, rooftop. You know, and the one thing that, you know, I've been saying now for all these years is, you know, I started using cannabis. I don't medicate in front of anybody any more than I take my thyroid medicine out of the bathroom and come into the living room in front of everybody and take it. I mean, it's, it's just it's my medicine. You know, and I treat it as such. Um, and I didn't have to burn my bra and start wearing tie-dye, you know, the second I decided to use cannabis. I mean, all <laughs> of these stereotypes need to be set aside. Sure, absolutely. But I'm going to say, oh, I use cannabis. Absolutely. It's done wonders for my ex, you know. Then that's something that people can do. Another yeah. thing they can do is when they go to their uh, neighbors and their doctor visits and their, you know, uh, uh, town hall meetings and stuff, take some, take some information. If there's a particular topic that's on, look up some good PubMed stuff on it and, 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 and inform. If you're going to the doctor and you have a doctor that's particularly negative or hesitant or something else, take the trouble to find the articles that are going to be now. You may not understand what you're reading. You may not, whatever. And if that's the case, print them all <laughs> because you don't want to pick one that doesn't have the right information in it. Sure. But um, it all starts out with education. Education is the key to changing everything. The other thing is we need to get insurance companies to start covering cannabis. Yes. Because there, I mean, I've always said that the medical community was going to be the one that really gets cannabis legalized because the doctors are going to be pushing to take better care of their patients once they know what's possible. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, it's all about money. And we just got finished talking about how the capitalism insurance companies are starting to understand that they can spend $300 a month on cannabis for somebody or 1500 a month for, on opioids for somebody. Yeah. The comp companies are starting to say, we can stop 
funding the opioids and start giving them cannabis and they're going to go back to work. Right. So yeah. we need to do what we can to influence the insurance industry because once they're a bigger lobby than the pharmaceutical industry, they're oh, a sure. big lobby. On so that's, that would be my suggestions. Yeah. Those that. Are, that, the insurance one, that's the one I haven't even thought of. That's an avenue I'm going to start pushing for. Uh, is there anything else? Uh, that you're working on right now that's that's promising that you want to tell everybody about or any news with well, Aunt Zelda's or yeah well you know Aunt Zelda's is now um, uh, manufacturing in South Africa and exporting from there um, okay. we're already into Brazil um, we're going to be in Mexico uh, producing in Mexico and um, I'm gonna be re reintroducing in California here soon. There's still some out there, but I'll be reintroducing. I think what's really exciting that I'm working on though is um, obviously that's exciting, but um, the the gift of COVID that I call it is the fact that I haven't had to travel. Mm -hmm. Now I'm starting to travel again, but that I hadn't been traveling for 18 months. Sure. And uh, in fact, I'm supposed to be at MJ Biz right now but I, I, I uh, uh, developed a fever and I can't get on an airplane because I'm in Mexico, so I can't get into the States with the, can't get on any airplane with a fever. Yeah. So that's the end of MJ Biz. But um, uh, so all this time I've been at home, I have been working on my, the software platform that we've been utilizing within Aunt Zelda's for nearly a decade. And now I've rebuilt it to start making it available. Uh, right now, it's still on invite only to doctors as they tested out various features. But um, I would imagine within the next, uh, by next summer, I'll have the next uh, iteration of 3.0 ready. And then it's going to be, it's going to take it to where cannabinoid-based medicine can be uh, prescribed and I use that word intentionally, uh, prescribed, even though we can't use a prescription in the U.S. because it's a federal document. Mm -hmm. But it will be able to be recommended in a prescription format, very specifically for different diseases, for different patients, based upon all the data that we've been getting all these years. And it keeps getting smarter and smarter with use. Cool. So I, that's, I think that's a game changer for... Um, for the for moving cannabis further as forward as a medicine, so there's a the group in Brazil that I, I've done this educational platform with, We Can Academy. Um, we're going to be offering it. We already are to um, all of the doctors that go through the course, and it's a it's a big course. Um, then have access to utilize the software, so they can actually use it with their patients. And that I'm extremely excited about that. We also are going to be starting uh, working with a, a clinical trial in Brazil uh, for Huntington's disease. I'm not, I mean, it's my medicine that will be used, but it's my, it's actually being conducted by Dr. Uh, Patricia Montagnier, who's a uh, neurosurgeon there. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So just, just doing a little. Just, just a little bit. I, I tell everybody that I got my fingers in too much. <laughs> you got me beat. 
you mentioned the yeah. uh, aspect of not being able to use the uh, prescription in the United States because it's a federal document. Uh, it's ironically, that's what they have to do in Texas by the Texas law, the, the, the teacup program that we have here. They have to prescribe it, which is makes the doctors, you know, skittish for joining up. Although I will have to say in the last year or so, we've gone had a massive jump in the number of doctors who are joining in on the program. There, there are over 400 doctors signed on now in the state of Texas. So the first few years, it was three. Now, is that CBD only? Uh, no, it started out when they first passed the program. Of course, the law passed in 2015, right? It didn't go into right. effect until 2017. And at that point in time, it was only for the most severe forms of intractable epilepsy. And at that point, it was only 0.5% uh, THC by weight, which a lot of people don't understand that, that what that, that doesn't mean by milligrams or, you know, and all of that hoopla. They get mis misinterpreted. But the most recent expansion that passed in uh, 2021, that just passed and just went into effect as, as of September 1st, increased that 0.5% to 1% THC. So... Now they're able to um, produce some some 10 milligram gummies and things like that, like other states are and whatnot. So it's gotten much, much better than what it was. And of course, there are a multitude of neurological conditions. All cancer uh, qualifies. Uh, uh, I think Parkinson's, PTSD, uh, neuropathy is one I could actually qualify here in Texas. I haven't signed up yet, but there's so many veterans that were signing up and there there's only two dispensaries licensed in Texas. So, and they can't have open shops around the state. They can only have one place where they store medicine overnight. So they have to deliver when you get a prescription filled, which is a pain in the, you know, what, uh, it's got a lot of, a lot of work needs to be done yet, obviously, but yes, it is more than just CBD. So they actually have full spectrum products out as well. Right. The the writing of a prescription to make it mandatory that they actually write a prescription is a way of setting the doctors up to not be able to write, to not be participating. Mm -hmm. They did the same thing in Louisiana when they passed it. Like, oh, yeah, doctors have to write a prescription and doctors can't write a prescription. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a it's it's like um, it's like dangling something in front of you but just out of your reach well, i think they're finally going to figure out after this last expansion of of conditions and increasing the thc the there i think there's been like 1400 new patients since september 1st sign up and, and uh, a lot of them veterans of course because of the pta ptsd edition uh, and um I think they're going to figure out that that's not going to stop anything at this point. The, the cat is out of the bag now. You know, it's it's beyond that that keeping it under wraps type right. of thing. Right. And of course, you know, that's the, the argument that I always give the lawmakers uh, whenever I meet with them uh, or when I write them or whatever is, you, you know, their their argument is, well, you know, we got to be careful. We don't want we want to get too far out there because then everybody will be doing it and <laughs> i just laugh when they say that and i say yeah okay what you don't realize is anybody who wants to probably already is they're just doing it on the black market right exactly 
that was proven out by a study that was done in Colorado. Um, I don't remember the exact numbers, and so I'm not going to make any up. But what they found was there was no increase in usage after legalization, except for the influx of medical refugees coming from non-legal states to be able to access it. And like you said, if they're already, you know, there's a lot of can of curious that might try it once or twice or use it as a, you know, a a fun pick me up now and then or a party, whatever. But um, that really, you know, it's like me. I still rather have a glass of wine. Yeah. If I want to, you know, recreate with something that's going to be mind altering, I don't go to my med, my cannabis medicine. That's not the high that I enjoy. You know, it's not the one. It doesn't take me necessarily where I want to go. I mean, there are times and there are products and this and that. And depending on my level of the level of pain I'm experiencing, whether I take exactly the same amount or whether I take a little bit more just so that I can get some relief. But that's still medical. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. I can't figure out what it is that that people are so afraid of, because animals, humans included, and animals have been seeking mind-altering experiences since <laughs> we have been on this planet. Yep. And uh, you know, it's like I would rather if somebody's going to use something, I would sure as heck rather they use something that they're not going to die from mm-hmm. than to use something with a potential overdose uh, potential. Now, a lot of the products that are being made out there without the kind of regulation that I believe there should be are potentially yeah. dangerous. Mm-hmm. And it's not just because it's cannabis, it's automatically okay. When you start isolating the molecule and putting high, high doses, we don't know what happens yet. Um, we need to figure out what's happening with all these nano encapsulation for water suspension products. Um, Mm -hmm. What happens with the rapid onset and its effect on other rapid onset uh, medications that are time released? So what's it going to do to them? Is it going to speed up the the effect of these other potentially harmful heart medicines, for example, other things like that? So um, I think the really big turnoff for lawmakers and the medical community and even the uninitiated patients are these absurd um, blanket hyperbolic statements as if it cures everything and no one's ever going to get sick and everything's perfect, you know, and and it's just not the case. I think that, that it's not potentially dangerous or particularly dangerous on this, on a spectrum. Sure. But it's definitely, it's, it's, you know, it's not a game. It's not a game. I mean, the the youngest person I've ever provided cannabis with, well, actually a pregnant woman treating her unborn child, but the, the uh, youngest person that I ever, you know, specifically created a protocol for was two weeks old. Um, And, you know, the oldest was over a hundred at this point. So, it's one of the, the beautiful thing is it can be utilized by all these various populations potentially with relative safety, but, you know, 
We need more research. We really do. We just need the Absolutely. right research. We need the right kind of research. Mm-hmm. And, and does it need to be a double blind placebo? Probably not. It should be double blind, but it, it's almost impossible to do a placebo study with cannabis because it's so obvious who's had it and who hasn't. Yeah. You know, it almost makes it impossible. I mean, yeah. you can't tell a nurse that she's not going to have some kid that's on chemotherapy puking his guts out, and this one's over here eating a hamburger, and this one over here is clearly his butt. You know, hmm, my gosh, I wonder which one had cannabis. You know, I mean, yeah. it's ridiculous. It would be kind of a dead giveaway. You know, ways to do it though, but it's not in the ways that people usually think of. Yeah. 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 You know, you, you talk about using cannabis and other medications and the interactions and whatnot. Um, you know, I, I was a daily cannabis user for over 26 years. Uh, and prior to my son and our conversations with him, whether or not he was going to try it or not, because he actually is the one who came to me and said, hey, have you heard these things? And, you know, we talked about it. I said, I've heard the stories, but I'll be honest with you. I don't know Jack Diddley, you know. But if you want to try it, I know where we can get it, you know. At this time, though, I hadn't used cannabis probably for three to five years, somewhere somewhere in that neighborhood. And uh, it was after I had stopped using when I got the diagnosis of the MGUS. And, of course, hypertension and high cholesterol came along with that. But uh, unrelated, of course. That's just getting old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, when we talked about it and everything, and then he didn't want to break the law, and of course, he came to his demise. Um, and then I started my research because I wanted to learn what was, this was all about. And then, of course, that started me on this path. And several people, Jim Jensen was actually the first one. In an interview he did of me, he asked me, that had I ever thought about it, started using it again for my neuropathy and whatnot. And I said, yeah, I had, but you know, uh, because of Will and his position, I just felt like I was honoring him by saying no, you know, and, and I kept that position for several years. I've since given up on that position and then started using cannabis again. Mm-hmm. And the, the effects are profound, I can say. But uh, one of the first things I did is through my advocacy, one friend or fellow advocate here in Texas is a a veteran, but she's also a pharmacist by trade. And I just reached out to her and I said, look, these are all the meds I take. This is how much cannabis I'm using. You know, what am I canceling out or not? You know, et cetera, et cetera. Tell me what I need to get with my doctor on, you know. (laughs) And there was actually we had to switch my cholesterol meds. because. I was basically making it not not do its job right. by using cannabis. Four fifty, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that that is a very important thing that that people need to understand that it can be beneficial, but it can also be detrimental. And the other thing to keep in mind is the cannabis may not interact directly with one of these drugs, but it may change the way another drug and another drug interact together, and mm-hmm. drug drug interaction is one of the leading causes of death. Mm-hmm. So um, it may affect that and it may affect like 
it's not going to change that drug, but it's going to make this one do something to your liver enzymes or, you know, I mean, you got to be mm -hmm. not a game. It's not a toy. You can't have it both ways. And that's one of the things that makes me nuts about the cannabis community. Sure. I consider myself in the healthcare industry. I don't consider myself in the cannabis industry. No. I'm working on helping uh, in healthcare and cannabis happens to be part of the way that I'm a significant way I'm doing that. When people, they want it both ways. They want it to be taken seriously as a medicine and then they want to sell it out of a Facebook group mm -hmm. <laughs> or on Instagram. You know what? That's not how you do. You can't have it both ways. And I understand, you know, people helping people and friends knowing that. But when I started seeing all this commercialization of people starting groups, and then next thing I knew, they're selling products that they're making in their kitchens or in their backyard or their garages you know, without any oversight, without any lab testing, without all these things. I thought, you got a lot of nerve putting somebody else's life at risk. And what kind of what kind of intake are you doing to figure out if it's safe or not? Yeah. You know, we asked over 300 questions, uh, different 300 data points that we're collecting going in on each patient, um, and that gives us the opportunity we have built into our system to see drug on drug interactions, cytochrome P450, being able to track whether there's any potential problems, any uh, potential emotional or psychological side of, I mean, there's all kinds of things that can sure. go into it. And I am so committed and adamant about cannabis being a serious medical option in many, many cases. I'm also just is, is uh, committed to not having it be done by un, unlicensed people. Now yeah. I understand, I mean, that doesn't make me very popular but I never really have worried about popularity. You know, I'm, I'm too busy changing the world to worry about popularity. But um, when, you know, it's one thing if you want to make something out in your own kitchen for you and your family and take that risk, but if you yeah. start treating other people and you start taking, making medicine that you're putting out there and you're making claims, you bet you better have some serious science and, and, and skills behind you. And that is just not what I've seen. Yeah, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, I know a few people like yourself that I would trust. Right. Uh, they are few and far between when it comes to whether I would take a product that they provided me and, and ingest it, you know. Now, I might take something and make it in my own home, like you say, for just me, but that's my choice. But, uh, you know, and, and the selling part, it drives me crazy. You know, the only reason why I'm still on Facebook is, is just simply because I do get a lot of exposure there. I do think that I still make a pretty good impact there, bigger than anywhere, any of the other social media platforms that I'm on. So I feel like I need to stay there so I can continue doing the work that I'm doing. But uh, it is a constant battle with, with policing, people putting links and comments on different posts like i'll post this podcast and somebody in invariably somebody will post a link to their website come by from me you know right and and that's one of the things you have to battle with facebook too because if they see that on there they'll shut you, your page down you know yeah it's people practicing medicine without a license yeah 
Um, I brought I brought the first nurse in to see our patients back in 2011. Um, she's now the president of the American Cannabis Nurses Association. Um, I we taught her everything oh. she knew, and then she's gone on and learned. You know, she's 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 smart. Um, and then I switched to doctors instead of nurses because I think that um, there's just a different dynamic with a you know, patient and their doctor. I think nurses are great for overseeing the compliance uh, with taking their medicine and how they take it and all that. But at the end of the day, they are not by nature, because they're nurses, accustomed to actually prescribing or making the initial, and they're not doctors to make the diagnosis. Yeah. So I, I mean, I really, you know, people say, oh, you're just feeding into the whole, you know, medical model. And it's like, Perhaps, but I would rather make it better than flip it off and, and go to, you know, Joe at the corner who says he he's cured 50 people of cancer. You know, I mean, what does that mean? Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm 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 stuck on the you know, I mean, that could include other types of medicine besides allopathic, of course. You know, I'm all for some of the Ayurvedic and even some of the, you know, um, uh, homeopathic in some cases, but certainly uh, looking at uh, naturopathics, integrative medicine, all of that, utilization with other plant medicines, and I mean, to, to in lieu of pharmaceuticals, but they still should be under the guidance of somebody that can make decisions about what's going on with you intelligently and that has some reference for it other than just, oh, I knew a guy once who said he had that. Yeah. And I cured him. Yeah. I knew a guy that knew a guy. <laughs> right. Cannabis has that kind of lack of gravitas. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to keep you any longer. Uh, All right. Well, thank you for having me, Chris. I appreciate it. I want to thank you for joining me. I really appreciate your insight and uh, your clarifications to some things that even I had a little bit wrong, like the anecdotal evidence. You know, uh, nobody's perfect, not even me. Well, you know what? The day that we stop learning and growing and expanding what we know is kind of the day it's all over, you know? I, wouldn't, I couldn't agree more with that statement. Absolutely. Like I said, I want to thank you again for joining me here, and I want to thank folks for joining us on the show tonight. My pleasure. Thank you. Gramps Place, where Gramps and his guests discuss all things of public interest and anything else that might need a little changing here in the good old USA. From ending the drug war and freeing those wrongfully imprisoned for crimes that have no victims, to making government more like what our forefathers intended of we the people again. Gramps talks with doctors, scientists, politicians, and more, so you can make your own decisions on important issues in the USA. Be sure to subscribe where you get your podcasts or visit GrampsPlace.net today. And as always, thank you for listening to Gramps Place. <laughs>